With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash acquire. That's linkedin.com slash acquire. Terms and conditions apply. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and... Starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, this is Allison. Before we start the show, I wanted to encourage you all to subscribe to Success on Apple Podcasts or your favorite app. It's a great way to make sure you never miss one of our most recent interviews. And while you're there, please leave a review and a rating. It really helps others find the show. Thanks. From Business Insider, this is Success, How I Did It. I'm Allison Chantel. Spencer Raskoff knows a lot about running a company, especially during a crisis. He's the CEO of Zillow, which he ran through the housing crash. And before that, he co-founded Hotwire, which survived the dot-com crash only to learn it had sold plane tickets to the 9-11 hijackers. And then there's this shadow of this weird connection to the actual tragedy itself. And then from a business standpoint, basically nobody traveled for like six months. And so it was a very difficult time, and we had significant layoffs. Through both personal and professional tragedies, Raskoff and his companies bounced back. Zillow now has a market cap of more than $5 billion. On this episode, Raskoff tells us how he did it, plus what it's like to work with Uber's new CEO, who he was buddies with at Expedia, and what it was like touring with rock bands as a kid. So we're really happy to have you today. Thanks so much, Spencer. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Can you take me back to growing up, what it was like for you? I understand you were an athlete, a chess whiz, your dad had an awesome job. Yeah, so I grew up here in Manhattan through fifth grade. My dad was an entrepreneur in the rock and roll industry, which... I'll tell you about. And uh, my mom was a real estate agent and then a school teacher. And I had a terrific upbringing. I was really academic, was a nationally ranked chess player and played really competitively. I was the fourth best chess player in the country when I was a little kid and played every weekend, you know, really hardcore. And then I moved to LA and my eyes were open to this whole other world of possibilities where you could go swimming and play basketball and play sports. And so um, my whole worldview changed. From an early age, I was inspired by my dad's entrepreneurialism. So my dad was a partner at an accounting firm, uh, one of the big eight accounting firms. Now it's part of KPMG. And in 1972, when he was uh, just a young partner there, this white shoe New York, you know, early 70s accounting firm told this manager of the Rolling Stones, uh, Prince Rupert Lowenstein, uh, to take a hike. We're not going to be the accountants for a bunch of rock and roll, drug addict, uh, crazy people. And my dad thought that sounded pretty interesting, actually. And so he took a leave of absence from the accounting firm and became the tour accountant on the 1972 Rolling Stones tour. And this was a couple years before I was born. And from that started his career, which spanned decades in rock and roll. And ultimately, he was a tour producer, a business manager of the Rolling Stones, U2, David Bowie, Pink Floyd, Paul Simon, and many others. And so 
watching that experience and growing up in and around the rock and roll industry and watching him leave a, a pretty conservative industry of accounting for the music industry and the innovation that he brought to that industry was a big part of my upbringing. Yeah, I mean, when you see someone take a big risk like that and then ultimately become successful at it, I have to imagine it makes you feel like you can tackle a lot as well. Great role model. Yes, for sure. So from what I understand, you had a pretty awful family tragedy happen early. Did that shape your career? Definitely. So when I was 15 and my brother was 17, he passed away in a car accident Mm. um, just a couple days before graduating from high school. And obviously it changed me dramatically. It it made me grow up real fast, uh, but it also kicked me into a different gear in terms of my quest for achievement. Uh, prior to that, I hadn't experienced much grit in my life. I grew up pretty affluent, frankly, spending summers touring with rock bands in Europe and in Asia with my family. And then when you lose your brother at an early age, all of a sudden, you're sort of jolted into just a, a different world. And so those last couple of years of high school, I kind of felt like I had to really overachieve and worked really hard and I'm still working really hard 25 years later. And that you did. You went off to Harvard <laughs> and then you did what a lot of Harvard people seem to do. You you wound <laughs> up on Wall Street. Too many, too many <laughs> in my opinion. Yes, uh, I did. So I graduated from Harvard class of 97 and the internet was just a couple years old then. And um, of my graduating class of about 1,600, probably fewer than 10 people moved out west to work in tech. They went to companies like AltaVista and Excite and Yahoo and eBay, which were tiny little startups at the time. Honestly, if you ask them why they did it, I think most of them would say it's because they couldn't get jobs in consulting or investment banking at the time. And of course, these people went on to incredible careers and massive riches from having been so early in technology. But back then, the Ivy League was just this conveyor belt to Wall Street. And in my opinion, unfortunately, not that much has changed actually 20 years later. A huge amount of our intellectual capital just gravitates there. Really, not out of passion for those industries, but just because they don't know what else to do when they graduate from college. And I think that's unfortunate. I did my two years and couldn't wait to get out of there. (laughs) When you were realizing that just the Wall Street and finance world was not for you, I think you've said your wife actually is kind of the person (laughs) who helps point things out before you even realize that you're unhappy doing something. Yeah. I mean, I call this a career mirror. I think it's incredibly important for everyone to have a career mirror. And it can be a spouse, a friend, a parent. But it has to be somebody that's far enough away from you that they're not in the super day-to-day. They can't really be a coworker, but they have to be close enough to know you better than you know yourself. And so every career decision I've made has been because my wife told me to, um, because she's held up a mirror to me. She said, look, you're unhappy. Like, you may not realize it, but you're unhappy doing this thing. And when I left Goldman Sachs to go to private equity, I left private equity to do a startup. And when I left that startup to do another startup, every one of those career changes was because she saw something before I did about how I was feeling. So talk to me about the move from private equity into your startup, which was Hotwire. It ended up being a huge success. Everyone remembers it, I think, who <laughs> was alive at the time. When I got to TPG, which is a, a huge private equity firm in 1999 after I left Goldman Sachs, the private equity firms were sort of on their heels. But the smart thing that the private equity firms did was they looked at their existing portfolio companies and tried to figure out how to leverage the internet. And so in the case of TPG, we had bought Continental Airlines out of bankruptcy, America West Airlines out of bankruptcy, Ryanair, which is the largest airline in Europe, and we had sold much of the Continental stake to Northwest. And so by the time I got there in the late 90s, we basically controlled four airlines. And so Hotwire was born out of TPG saying to these airlines and then a couple other airlines, hey, let's create an industry consortium startup to compete with Priceline. And so I was basically staffed on that project. 
and I eventually left TPG to start the company. We had to call it something cool at the time, and so we called it Project Purple Demon because that sounded really hip, and this was San Francisco 1999. You had to sound cool to attract employees, and Project Purple Demon would eventually become Hotwire. And the little known fact is that at the same time, those airlines that we went to to create the company said, hey, this sounds great. We're going to create an airline industry controlled and owned consortium startup in the discount travel space to compete with Priceline. Will you, TPG, also create one in the full price category to compete with Travelocity and Expedia? And the project name for that was T2, which stood for Travelocity Terminator. <laughs> um, and we said, no, you know, we don't really do this. We're a private equity firm. We're already kind of out of our depth doing this one startup. And so the airlines hired Boston Consulting Group to create T2, which would eventually become Orbitz. So these two companies, Orbitz and Hotwire, were started about the same time by about the same airlines, but had very different governance. In the case of Orbitz, the airlines controlled Orbitz. And in the case of Hotwire, the airlines all got non-voting stock. And so the management team had latitude on how to run Hotwire. For example, Hotwire pivoted very quickly to the hotel side of the business, which is where most of the money is in the travel industry. But in the case of Orbitz, they stuck with airline tickets because the airlines wanted Orbitz to basically be a foil to Expedia and Travelocity. 15 plus years later, you probably still think of airlines when you think of Orbitz, and you probably think of hotels when you think of Hotwire. The airlines wanted it to be that way. And of course, now they're all owned by Expedia Group, which is who we sold Hotwire to, and ironically, who Orbitz eventually sold to as well. So Expedia Group owns Orbitz, Travelocity, Expedia, Hotwire, Hotels.com, Trivago, and basically everything. Wow. So you started what eventually became Hotwire in the late 90s. Yes. Prime.com, boom. Bubble. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then in 2001, obviously 9-11 happened, yeah. and that rocked the entire industry, but you were in the travel industry. <laughs> And it really hit your business hard. So talk about that, because it also sounds like, from what I understand, you all discovered that you personally had a role in that, unintentionally that day. Yeah, I mean, that's, um, <laughs> you know, 9-11 really tested the company for a lot of reasons. So first, first of all, for me personally, I was in New York on September 10th. I spoke at the Millennial Hilton at World Trade Center, which was, of course, crushed the next day. I was on the Newark to SFO flight on the 10th or maybe I'm off by a day, but within a day or two on the same flight, same flight number. And so I was um, personally shaken up by my connection to it. And I actually lost a family friend on the plane that went down in Pennsylvania. And so that was obviously difficult. And then that morning, we had tens of thousands of customers that were stranded around the world who we had sold airline tickets and hotel rooms to. So we had this huge customer service nightmare. And then to make matters worse, as you alluded to, Hotwire actually sold some of the tickets to the hijackers. How did um, you guys realize that? And what was it like when you put that together? So it, not that it makes much difference, but it wasn't the September 11th flights. It was the flights a couple days earlier that put the team in place in Bangor, Maine. And then they flew from Bangor to Logan. I think the way we found out about it was the FBI told us. Um, wow. They came knocking, I think, probably that day or within a couple of days. And it cast this really awful shadow of culpability over the company. So as we were struggling with dislocated customers, employees that we weren't sure of their location, and then there's this shadow of this weird connection to the actual tragedy itself. And then from a business standpoint, basically nobody traveled for like six months. And so it was a very difficult time. And we had significant layoffs. We did a down round, which wiped out a lot of the equity that the employees had in the company. And you certainly figure out what kind of a executive or what kind of a manager you are pretty quick when you go through that type of adversity. To our credit, two years later, we had turned the company around and pulled through all of that trauma. 
and sold the company successfully to Expedia for about $700 million. In um, all cash. In all cash, which at the time, this is so quaint, right? In 2003, when we sold the company, that was the largest ever all-cash sale of a tech company. You know, now $700 million is just like an Uber Series E-round. Yeah, that's, you know? especially for all-cash. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> I think Uber does raise that in a round. But um, yeah, no, but I mean, for an all-cash deal, it, yeah. and just like you said, coming back from that, like, yes how hard that must have rocked your business and every tech business was rocked incredibly hard to coming back to that kind of exit. I mean, how did you do that? The team stuck together. I mean, the first thing we did was we cut deep at the Mm -hmm. company and I've done layoffs, unfortunately, twice in my career, once at Hotware and then once at Zillow. I think it's important to cut deep enough that you never have to have a second round of cuts if possible because the fear of, oh, am I going to be next? It just paralyzes the organization. So we cut probably deeper than we had to intentionally to leave some cushion. And we recommitted the employee base to the mission and to each other. You made me talk about my brother, but I guess it's not that different than that. It's like now we have to sort of succeed so that those that are no longer here didn't sort of sacrifice what they sacrificed in vain. And so we worked our butts off to make Hotwire successful. We did a lot of really smart, tactical, business-oriented things around the pivot to hotels, around innovations on the product. At the time, Priceline was our main rival, and the name your price thing was Priceline's innovation. And Hotwire's innovation was that we showed you the price. And so you didn't know what the hotel was until after you purchased But we showed you what the price was, and so it took some of the guessing out of it, and that was very innovative, and it made for a very appealing value proposition to our suppliers, our airlines and hotels, but also to consumers. And then we took a big bet on advertising. One of the benefits of the dot-com meltdown was TV advertising was pretty cheap because all those startups that were advertising in the late 90s were gone. And so at Hotwire, we invested really early in TV. Today, of course, you turn on the TV, two seconds later, you'll see an ad for Trivago and Expedia and TripAdvisor. They're everywhere. But in 2001 to 2003, the airwaves were pretty empty from travel advertising. And that was a big bet that we made and it paid off. So when you're selling the company, it sounds like a huge, amazing exit. Was it was it great for you guys <laughs> no, as founders or was it not? <laughs> it was not. And this is a good lesson for founders. Down round basically wipes out most of the employee equity because um, employees typically have common and investors typically have preferred. So $700 million sale sounds really great, but it's mostly the venture capitalists that made the money, uh, not the employees. You don't have to feel sorry for anyone at, at Hotwire. They all did fine and they're doing fine, but it wasn't the type of exit that I think people expected. Right. It's not like when you read 25-year-old sells this company for $700 million in all cash. <laughs> There's usually, read the fine print. Right. <laughs> or it usually doesn't get printed as fine print, but uh, you know, usually stories like that have a layer of complexity to them. We'll be right back. Ever wonder how Tim Ferriss manages his money? How about Jim Cramer or Gretchen Rubin and Deepak Chopra? Also, what are the secrets to retiring in your 30s? Personal finance expert Farnoosh Tarabi hosts the award-winning So Money podcast, where she and guests reveal their financial habits, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Plus, on Friday, she answers listeners' burning money questions. Become a part of the So Money Nation and subscribe to the show on iTunes and visit somoneypodcast.com. So you go on and you become a VP at what is yeah, Expedia. So, so the, the two years prior to the sale, from 01 to 03, those two difficult years after 9-11, I was actually commuting to Seattle because on September 10th, 2001, my wife moved from San Francisco, which is where Hotwire was, to Seattle to go to med school at the University of Washington. Our first day apart was September 11th. I remember watching 
it on TV from San Francisco and on the phone with her in Seattle. So for those two difficult years, I was also commuting to my wife from San Francisco to Seattle. So as soon as we sold the company to Expedia, which is based in Seattle, I moved like literally that week. And I worked at Expedia and I managed the hotel business for Expedia, Hotwire and Hotels.com. And I was there for about a year. And, and you worked with Dara, who's now the Uber CEO, right? I did, yeah. So I worked with Dara, who I had known. Everything kind of comes full circle. When I was a summer analyst at Allen & Company when I was 19 in college, he was at Allen & Company as a junior investment banker, and he was my mentor at Allen & Company. So I had known Dara since I was a teenager, really. And in the weird small world that it is, he ended up being my manager at Expedia uh, when he was the CEO at Expedia. And so I reported to Dara, and he's a fantastic person, executive, manager, mentor, friend. I think the world of him, and he's the right choice for Uber. He's exactly what they need right now. That's great. So you're basically saying I should have called you two months ago, and you would have known <laughs> that this was happening when I, none of the world did. I was surprised how surprised everyone was. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, and that actually is a testament to Dara. It's because he's not a self-promoter. Most people had probably never heard of Dara Kastrashali until the Uber announcement, and that's because he would have it no other way. So I reported to Dara at Expedia, but I wasn't that happy. I wanted to be in a smaller company environment, more entrepreneurial, where I could make more of, a, of an individual difference. And so in 2005, I left with most of the Expedia management team that preceded Dara, and we all left to start Zillow together. So the first probably 15 or 20 employees at Zillow all came from Expedia, and it's basically the founding team from Expedia. So were you guys just like all at a bar one night and like, hey, I think let's do this Zillow thing? Five or six or seven of us were just literally in that conference room for weeks discussing, debating, thinking, talking, writing on whiteboards, trying to decide whether to do something in real estate or something else. We knew we wanted to do a startup, and we knew we wanted to do something together. We ultimately decided that the consumer need was so great in real estate that consumers were so disempowered. There was this information asymmetry between consumers and professionals in real estate. And so we thought we could apply some of the same themes around information empowerment. However, there's a huge difference, which frequently gets lost in the details. In the case of travel, it's a really simple transaction and you don't need an intermediary. You can buy an airline ticket from Expedia or Hotwire and you don't need to talk to anybody. In the case of real estate, it's a complex and frequent, expensive, emotional transaction. And so I believe it will always have an intermediary, always have a real estate agent in the transaction. So at Zillow, we never, even from the very beginning, we never endeavored to eliminate the real estate agent. We just wanted to provide the consumer with the same information as the real estate agent and then let them work together. So it's much more akin to like a WebMD where there's all this information about healthcare and the patient and the patient's family can read it, but then they still go to the doctor and the doctor helps them interpret that information. They're not cutting out the doctor, they're just informing the patient. So what's the first product iteration of Zillow like and how do you start getting early traction for it? I still remember we were in this high rise at Two Union Street in downtown Seattle and we were looking at Queen Anne, which is this neighborhood on a hill that looks at downtown on one side and Puget Sound on the other. And when you look at Queen Anne from the high rise of this conference room, you can see this landscape of hundreds of houses. And we said, you know, every other real estate site focuses on what's for sale. What if we focused on answering this other question that people have about real estate, which is what's my house worth? And we looked at Queen Anne and we envisioned, imagine a price on every rooftop. Wouldn't that be amazing? And then to further the Seattle part of the story here, this is very Seattle. So indulge me for a second as we sit here in midtown Manhattan, feels a world away. Wales in Puget Sound frequently breach. And so as they pass from Mexico and California up to Alaska during whale season, you can actually see them from offices in Seattle. You can literally see whales in Puget Sound, which is like, can you imagine a whale in the East River? Like, it's, <laughs> it's weird to imagine. But anyway, so we, we talked a lot about whales and we said, 
when you go whale watching and a whale breaches, a whale jumps up above the water, everybody oohs and ahs and takes pictures of it and talks about, oh, look at the whale. And then the whale goes back underwater for like 45 minutes, and it's the most boring thing in the world. You have no idea where the whale went. And that struck us as a lot like housing. When a home comes on the market, everyone talks about it. You take pictures. Oh, do you see the neighbor's house? But then the home goes off the market, and there's no, no conversation about it. But actually, a lot of interesting stuff is happening when that whale's underwater and to the home when it's not on the market. And so we tried to provide transparency to the whole real estate marketplace, not just the 3% of homes that are for sale at any point in time. So shine a light on what's happening when the whale's underwater was kind of inspiration for us. And that was the Zestimate. Yes. And so we said, okay, let's try to figure out what every house in the country is worth. Great. Okay. How do we do that? Well, I know. Let's call Stan. And literally, we called Dr. Stan Humphreys, who was running analytics and personalization at Expedia. And we said, Stan, we finally figured out what we want to do. We want to figure out what every house in the country is worth. And we want you to be the person who helps us do that. And he said, well, I don't know anything about real estate. And we said, it's okay. This is not about real estate. This is a math problem. It has nothing to do with real estate. And we went about the task of assembling all this data from county sources. So most of this information, bad bath square footage, tax assessment, sale history, is available in county courthouses. But we had to go acquire it, digitize it, and then build the data layer, the Zestimate, that sits on top of that. And when we launched in, I think it was February of 2006, we got about a million visitors within the first day. Even all these years later, I still don't think any other service, Snapchat, Facebook, whatever, I don't think anyone else has had a million users in day one because it's so cool and so innovative to say like, oh my God, I can grab my kid's school roster and I can Zillow everybody at my kid's school and you know see what everyone's house is worth, see what everyone paid for the home. And that was just like this, oh my God kind of thing that launched the company in 2006. So you launched with this estimate. Was there press yeah. around it? And it just like massive the headlines wrote press. themselves? No, so there was massive press. And I was the CMO at the time. And I met with Henry Blodgett at Business Insider at the time. It was a small operation back then. And we met with Walt Mossberg at the Wall Street Journal. And we met with Bob Tedeschi at the New York Times and you know, and on and on. And we briefed them under embargo. And they were, on, they were zillowing their house. And they were zillowing the houses they grew up in on the test site. And then the day we launched, there was this huge media explosion, and it brought the site down. The good of this huge amount of traffic was, well, we launched with a bang, but about six hours later, the website crashed and was down for about four or five hours before we could scramble to get it back up. And did you have a patent on it? Was that important? Um, We filed probably a couple dozen patents, including different things around this estimate. But to be candid, we've never really over-invested in patent protection because it's the type of thing in technology that it's very hard to rest on. I mean, you can have a patent for something and then a couple other companies violate that patent and then you get relief, you know, six years later, but by then it's too late. It's like, well, what good is that? So it wouldn't save the day, we don't think. It sounds like you have this amazing initial day of launch that any (laughs) startup would kill to have by having this innovative piece of technology that you've built. But then a couple of years later, 2008 happens. And you're back in another crash. Yeah, history repeats itself. Yes. I'm, I'm, I'm starting to think maybe I'm the problem. Um, yeah, maybe the businesses you start should give us all a sign. <laughs> two years later. No, it's true. I mean, almost two years to the day from launch, from both cases, Hotware 99 to 01 and Zillow 06 to 08, these companies hit just a huge brick wall yeah. from an exogenous event totally out of our control. <laughs> exactly. Now, at least in this case, we called it. We saw it coming. 
And I mean, you can still go back and you can look on Zillow blog and you see blog posts that I wrote and Stan, who by this point had become our chief economist, wrote about how it was obvious, in our opinion, that housing was going to crash and that it was built on the foundation of sand. And there was too much easy credit that had allowed people to buy homes that really couldn't afford them. And so our data was predicting it. Unfortunately for us, we didn't short housing or anything like that. We could have probably done very well if we had acted on our data, but we didn't. Anyway, we saw it coming, but that was a little consolation. Housing still crashed. We still had layoffs. We avoided a down round this time, though. (laughs) And that is not insignificant. And as was the case with Hotwire, within another year or two, we got up off the mat and we're doing well. It was the same thing. It was cut deep and recommit the remaining employees to the mission. In both cases, the adversity that Hotwire and Zilla faced, there was a silver lining, it turns out. It made both companies much stronger as a result. And I don't think Zilla would have been as successful today had it not been for the adversity that we faced in, in 07, 08. So then from there, you took the company public in 2011, yeah. right? And first time taking a company public? I mean, I had advised as an investment banker taking other companies public, but certainly first time as a public CEO. And it was... Um, a fun, interesting experience, but not the end by any means. I mean, we viewed it very much as just a stepping stone, not the end, but the beginning. We had about 15 million of quarterly revenue. We had about a $500 million market cap when we went public. And, and now um, you're doing like, what, a billion? Today, we do about 250 million of quarterly revenue, about over a billion of revenue, and we have about a seven or $8 billion market cap. So the company's grown tremendously, 16 acquisitions, 3,500 employees. When we went public, we had about 300 employees. So everything is about 10x today as compared with the IPO about six years ago. And that's been amazing. It's also forced me to totally change everything about how I lead and how I manage and what my calendar looks like and you know what my day-to-day is because the company is just a totally different animal today than it was six yeah. years ago. Yeah. So talk about that. You have a podcast of your own called Office Hours. And there's an episode with Bill Gurley, who's a famous tech investor and has been on your board, mm-hmm. that I was listening to. And Bill was saying, it's great when startups can figure out how to grow to be worth tens of millions and then generating hundreds of millions. It is a Herculean effort to get it from hundreds of millions in revenue to billions. And you've done all that. And now your job is to get it from a billion more. <laughs> it only gets harder. Yeah. It's true. The first hundred million of revenue is the easiest. That probably sounds like really callous, but the truth is that you know it only gets harder. You know, when you have a billion of revenue, it's very difficult to grow twenty five percent year over year because you have to invent huge new revenue lines to move the needle, and that's a lot easier off a small base. The other issue that faces all companies is as you get to a large enough size, there are people whose job it is to protect business lines. They're just doing their job, but this is the classic case of The Innovator's Dilemma, the famous business book, which says that when companies ultimately fail, whether it's Polaroid or you know whomever, it's not because they were big and dumb. It's because they were actually really smart. They actually were protecting their core. They were doing what you think you're supposed to need to do, and you're running a big company, but they don't actually innovate because they're not willing to risk the core, and so they get disrupted. And that is what I spend most of my time worrying about now. We were the disruptor. How do we now avoid being disrupted? And most of the money, is it still ads? Is it putting people in touch with realtors? It's all advertising of different sorts. So about 75% of our revenue, so call it 750-ish million, comes from individual real estate agents. And then we have a big mortgages business, a rentals business, and a display advertising business, new construction business. All that together is about a quarter of revenue. But it's all advertising. Wow. And so you touched on this a tad, but you know, you've had to change your leadership style and your whole calendar and everything um, now that you're running a $7 billion plus company. How have you figured out how to do that? And what are some tips that you've learned? Firstly, you have to take seriously 
this reflection that every person at the company, you need to think about, is that the right person for the next two years in the role? So if you're a manager and you have 10 direct reports, those people, they show up for work today just because they had the job yesterday, but you as their manager need to think, well, is that the right person for the next two years? And if not, change the person or, or figure out how to change their point of view. But I also think about that for myself. And so I think, okay, how do I set myself up for what the next two years look like and how do, what changes do I have to make? Everything I say now has a different weight to it, which took some getting used to. I mean, when we were a small startup, I could sort of ask random questions and throw out random ideas. Now people actually do the things I randomly say. Um, <laughs> that can be... Yeah, your words have a lot of weight. Yes. And so realizing that requires me to then change even my questions, because questions are really statements in disguise. And even my attendance at things is a vote that I think that thing is important. So being really reflective about those things is something that I've worked hard at. And so it's ongoing. All right. So in order to afford these great big houses, you need to have a successful career. You've had a tremendously successful career. So looking back on it, what would you say has made you the most successful? I've always looked 10 years my senior and tried to find somebody at my company to think about if I want that person's life, their whole life. Usually younger people earlier in their career, people look at a senior person, they look at their compensation. And I'm advising not to do that. So you're a associate in the marketing department, look at the VP marketing and say, do I want her or his work-life balance, respect in the community, intellectual stimulation of their job, title, sure, compensation, yes, but sort of the whole package. That's the path you're on. Like you could wake up in the blink of an eye and end up in that world. And if you don't like that trajectory, then find some other path. The other advice I'd give is something that Sheryl Sandberg has been very articulate about, eloquent about, which is this whole, your career is a jungle gym, not a career ladder. It's something that I found in my career. So what does that really mean? It means that you're on a particular path and then be willing to go off to the side. So in my case, for example, I was running supplier relations, so relations with the hotel industry, and then I moved over to a marketing role where I really had no experience or background. And then I moved over to a finance role where, yet again, I had no direct experience. And so it's kind of like one step to the side to take two steps forward, one step back to take three steps forward, and charting this very kind of circuitous route, which is unique to this generation. I mean, our parents and our grandparents had a much simpler career path. Just sort of do the time and you'll get promoted eventually. That's not the way it works now. So you have to build your own career path and be willing to take some steps to the side in order to take steps up. Great. Well, Spencer, thank you so much. It's been fun. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Success How I Did It. Please be sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. You'll find interviews there with people like PayPal CEO Dan Shulman and the former CIA director John Brennan. And please leave us a review. It really helps new listeners find the show. I'm Allison Chantel. We'll be back next week with more success.